Hi, Damien Marcus from 100 Not Out here. MP. Yes, Damo. We all know the importance of having a diary, but who wants a boring old day planner? Not me. Enter the journey of me. Ta-da! The incredible eight-month wellness journal designed especially for wellness peeps like you. Yes, Damo. This beautiful eight-month wellness guide is filled with questions, planners, exercises, reflective notes, and more. Endorsed by the Up For A Chat girls and loved the world over, the journey of me is a must-have if you're ready to live your best life for life. To purchase your very own journey of me and receive a free set of inspirational postcards, simply enter the code COUCH at www.wellandnew.com. That's www.wellinux.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. We do this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best with your moving. To help me, as always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Dr. Anthony Coxon. G'day, Anthony. How are you going? Hiya, Paul. Uh, great to be here. Always great to be here. Um, very interested in what we're going to chat about today. Of course, as chiropractors, we have a lot to do with the spine and the nervous system. Yep. Today, we're talking feet. Um, and of course, as any good chiropractor should, we need to have relationships with people who are experts in this field because the feet are the foundation for pretty much everything. Not much north of the feet will work well if the feet are not working well. So uh, very excited to hear what our podiatrist has to say tonight. And look, Tony is a, a good Italian as well. Can I just mention that? He's, so, a, he's an Italian connection. So you're calling in the Italian mafia health practitioners. Well, you know, look, we might find there's a few more Italians coming on back chat, and yeah. that's got nothing to do yeah, with that. It's just right. pure coincidence. See you where know? This is going. Exactly. But without further ado, let me introduce Tony. Tony Maserati is a sports podiatrist who holds a Bachelor of Podiatry, Masters of Health Science in Podiatry, and an Advanced Diploma of Myotherapy. He's a member of the Australasian Academy of Podiatric sports medicine and an associate member of the American Academy of the Podiatric Support Sports Medicine. Tony is founder and director of Eastern Foot Care, which has seven podiatrists and two sites in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. He's also a former board member of the Australian Podiatry Association. Hi, Tony. How are you going? Hi, guys. Thank you for having me tonight. Excellent. So, Tony, we, we need to start up to find out about what a podiatrist, uh, what the qualification is with regards to a podiatrist. And indeed, especially as sports podiatrists, can you give our listeners from Backchat a bit of background there? Okay, so podiatrists these days complete a four-year double degree, a Bachelor of Health Science and a Master degree in podiatric practice. This is offered through most universities across Australia. Sports podiatrists usually hold a number of memberships with various sporting organisations and... Um, some are lucky enough to work in sporting clubs, exclusively working with professional athletes. Okay, very interesting. Well, yeah. As I alluded to earlier, Tony, and thank you for being Tony, and, and of course I'm Anthony because it gets very confusing. We've, <laughs> we've interviewed Pauls before, and when there's two Pauls, it's just <laughs> hopeless. But uh, Tony, I, I alluded to before that uh, quite often chiropractors and podiatrists will co-manage uh, conditions together um, and bring their own individual expertise in to help the same person. Uh, probably the most 
common uh, problem I see where I'll have a relationship with a podiatrist is in the area of heel pain. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. You're 100% correct, Anthony. Heel pain, both chronic and acute, is one of the most common symptoms that I'll see in clinic. It's important to keep in mind, though, that heel pain is a symptom, and the most common cause of this symptom is plantar fasciitis. The plantar fascia affects or plantar fasciitis, for that matter, affects the fascia, which is effectively a rope-like structure, a very thin rope-like structure that runs across the sole of the foot. It connects the heel to the front part of the foot. Okay. So, so this is uh, you will see this, obviously, in people of uh, all ages and all types. I mean, one of the things that um, uh, you know, some listeners may recall, I certainly recall this, being a keen observer of the uh, Olympics is that Famously, Jana Pittman, who was, I don't know if you remember this, Paul, the 400-meter hurdles. Yes. Well, I think she won two world championships. She's also unique for actually being one of the few athletes that's competed in the summer and, and winter, winter Olympics. Olympics. Yeah, that's, that's But she missed out in London uh, because of heel pain and because okay. of, in fact, plantar fasciitis. So is it something that – oh, it's obviously something that affects uh, some athletes. Is it athletes across the board or is this a, a common problem with everyone in the population? No, not at all. Look, many people can be affected by plantar fasciitis. Yana, unfortunately, had, uh, I think, four cases of, of, of plantar fasciitis in a very short period of time, and that obviously ended her career, I think, back in 2013, her sprinting career, that is. Not all of our patients are A1. We, we see mums, dads, weekend warriors with this condition. In actual fact, these days we're seeing more and more younger people, so teenagers with plantar fasciitis, and uh, I put it down to, well, part of the reason for that is kids are going at sport a lot harder and much faster than what they ever used to. So placing their feet and ankles under, ankles under much stress. Okay, it's interesting. You know, it's a bit like overuse syndromes, isn't it, really? You look at, you know, the, the osteitis pubis, that sort of presentation happening a lot with footballers and absolutely stress, stress overloads. Is, is it sort of similar to that in that context, Tony, you think? Absolutely. There's a number of causes for plantar fasciitis. Stress overload is certainly one key component of it. There are some other factors too to keep in mind, and some of these include being overweight, mm -hmm. obviously places uh, much more demand upon the fascia and the foot itself, having an abnormal foot posture. So perhaps having a foot that's too flat or excessively high will also place strain on this, on this structure. Overload, so doing activities that uh, perhaps you're not used to. So all of a sudden, Dad decides to get up and start getting fit and participating in a few fun runs, not really being conditioned to that activity. Put foot, poor footwear, sorry, is, is another factor. Uh, so shoes today comes in all, all sorts of shapes and sizes and structures. And finally, tight muscles, tight calves, tight hamstrings will also predispose one to this condition of plantar fasciitis. Isn't it interesting, Anthony, because, uh, you know, what, what uh, Tony's talking about is foot posture and as chiropractors, you know, a lot of chiropractors listen to our to the back chat here, here and overseas and it's, you know, when we're assessing foot posture and, and feet rolling in with pronation and, and the effects that that has, you know, up into the spine, I mean, it's, it's an area that we really can't neglect, can we? Yeah, it's, it's really important, no doubt about it. So the, the, what I find in the practice, that stereotypical, I guess, presentation of plantar fasciitis is the person who complains about foot pain and especially heel pain when they first walk in the morning or after they've been sitting for long periods of time. Uh, less commonly, we'll get people who get uh, 
pain that just increases throughout the day. They might not be so bad when they first walk, but if they've been on their feet, um, they tend to, to get worse. Are both those examples of plantar fasciitis or is one different to the other? There are many entities that can bring on heel pain. Typically, your classic plantar fasciitis will be sore at first step in the morning, and this is a sign that we call first step pain. Part of the reason for that first step is that when we sleep, the tissues tighten up. As soon as you go to put weight on that first thing in the morning, you're stretching this structure that that is, is basically relaxed overnight, it's cooled down and it's shortened. With some episodes of heel pain, you will get symptoms later on in the day, Anthony, and typically they tend to evolve, involve more the nerves around the heel, so compressive type issues that will sort of tend to linger on throughout the day, but usually be at their worst at the end of the day. Okay. And if we go beyond that, uh, Tony, in regards, say, long-term issues and effects with heel pain, if, especially if, I suppose, you know, we have a lot of patients who perhaps just deal with it, foot pain, don't get it treated, don't get it properly looked after, and then suddenly it becomes not an acute problem, not a subacute problem, but a chronic problem over a long time period. What, what, what sort of some of the effects that could happen here? Okay. So it's a good question, that one, because most heel pain cases that I see in practice, that uh, I always love to see the acute injury. I think they are a little bit easier to treat. The chronic cases that have been there for three-plus months are always a challenge, and it has profound effects on the individual's health, from psychological to physical. If you're walking around with a sore heel, and some patients describe it as being like an ice pick being jammed into the heel, okay. yeah. you tend to compensate. So you get neurological changes, and then you start to have breakdown of other structures that are coping with that injury. Quality of life is probably one of the biggest things that we'll see. People do admit that uh, their chronic pain has affected their quality of life and being able to go for a simple walk with the children or, or stand at work for seven or eight hours uh, becomes a real challenge. So the effects can be quite profound. So well, you, earlier you mentioned when you were going through the uh, list of possible causes of uh, plantar fasciitis, uh, you mentioned about footwear, and of course this is something that's um, extremely important. Um, in the last probably five or so years, there's, um, the more free type of uh, footwear has become far more common than it was previously. So we used to have, you know, I know when I don't know about you, Paul, but when mm. I went to school, it was, uh, was it, I think it was Clark's, uh, was probably the big brand. It was all about, you know, structure, strong good, strong support, and that sort of has flowed through for a long time until more recently where they've gone for more the, yes, we need to move, we need to stimulate the nervous system, proprioception, all these sorts of things. So we see these shoes now, and runners in particular, that don't have structure to them, that are very much about um, allowing the foot to move a whole lot more than it would in a structured shoe. So in terms of, I guess as a general question, but also in particular in terms of plantar fasciitis, where do you sit as a podiatrist for the structured versus unstructured shoe? Horses for courses. I think structured shoes certainly have a place, and I think the free type of shoes that you're talking about, Anthony, certainly have a place as well. A lot of these minimalist type shoes were designed as training tools in the initial stages. They weren't really designed to be worn 24-7 or all day or for every single training session. They were meant to be probably taking up 20-30% of one's training regime and then they would flick across to a structured shoe. So it was seen as a 
as a training tool rather than a, a full-time shoe. In my opinion, would I put a patient in a minimalist-type shoe? I think it has a place. If, if a patient has had that type of shoe in the past and they've been comfortable, um, I've got no issue prescribing that shoe. But for somebody who has a raging plantar fasciitis case and they need cushioning and they need support to help stabilise that plantar fascia, that's certainly the shoe that I would look at. Just to follow with that, um, uh, certainly one thing, and I'm glad you mentioned the horses for courses. I think that's a really uh, sensible approach to these sorts of things because what I've sort of found is that those free type of shoes often do work very well. And I love the aspect of that proprioceptive feedback into the brain because the foot's moving a whole mm. lot more. But it often depends on the surface that they're on. So if someone's doing a lot of pavement running on, a, for example, mm. a really uh, free type of shoe, and especially if their body's not designed, they don't have the right sort of calf strength and flexibility yep. for it, they often end up in a lot of problem. Um, so I guess on a, on a, on a softer surface, uh, a, a more free shoe is probably going to work better, would you say? Absolutely. One of, one of the things that we found, Anthony, was that uh, patients were coming in with these minimalist shoes and obviously with a minimalist type of shoe, it does encourage you to, to strike more on the front part of the foot being the forefoot. And when we went through this big craze, which only finished about 12 months ago with minimalist footwear, we were seeing more and more stress fractures of the metatarsal end of the clinic. Right. And I think part of the reason for that was that people were running on hard pavements and athletics tracks and so forth, which certainly contributed to the shock at the forefoot. So certainly grass and softer surfaces are the way to go. So, Tony, if we, if we go back to sort of the examination procedure and, you know, when a patient has heel pain, what sort of special tests do you have in your armoury that you would look to try and help diagnose what the problem is? Well, well given that plantar fasciitis often has a number of causes. The, the, the skilled clinician should be looking at the foot, the ankle, but also what's above as well. So you've got to look at the whole change. You've got to look at the whole lower limb. There are so many factors behind it. I, I think you would start with careful, we start with careful palpation of the, uh, of the plantar fascia. Radiology or x-rays and expensive MRIs don't really come into it at that initial consult unless the patient has had a long-standing history of plantar fasciitis or if they've tried many other treatments in the past to no avail. So that's when we would call upon those, those sorts of scans. But typically, careful palpation we would then of the area, we would then look at the person standing, so having a weight-bearing assessment we would have a look at a, a, a dynamic assessment also of one's gait and we'd also have a look at that person running to see if there's any mechanical factors such as the high arch feet or the flat-footed patient, uh, which can certainly put strain on the, on the plantar fascia. Okay, so when you said the dynamic examination, Tony, can you explain a bit more what you do in your clinic with that? Is that an eyeball situation or do you use technology? What do you use there? We, we use both and, and a little bit more than that too. We have, uh, so we certainly eyeball the patient walking and running up and down a, a pathway. We also get them on a treadmill and we utilise technology there to be able to capture their gait and then play that back in slow motion from various angles and be able to, to look at the patient uh, and see where this faults mechanically from the hip, knee, ankle or foot. And we also have a look at the patient in their current runners as well, their current footwear to see if they're certainly adequate. 
So, Tone, you know, 10 years ago, would a podiatrist be doing that? Or is, this, is this new sort of technology with the gait assessment or is that something that a podiatrist 10 years ago would have been looking at? No, not at all, Paul. Look, podiatrists have been looking at gait now closely for about the last 20 to 25 years. Okay. The, the advent of video technology to, to record one's gait has, has been around for that time as well. Okay. So it's certainly nothing new, but I suppose we know a lot more now about the condition and and uh, there's, there's much more research out there as far as evidence-based practice goes. So, You mentioned earlier how um, usually imaging, X-ray, MRI, etc. is not important for people, especially in the early phases. Uh, often when we do take, uh, or there has been, say, an X-ray taken, we'll see a heel spur uh, often associated with plantar fasciitis. Can you explain a little bit about what a heel spur is? Yeah, sure. Anthony, the hill spur is a little projection of bone. It's almost like a chicken spur that protrudes from the bottom of the heel bone, otherwise known as the calcaneus. So effectively, this comes about by soft tissues pulling on that heel bone, producing a tiny spur. It's quite, it's quite interesting to look at because patients will often see that as being something that's because it's pointed and sharp and they look at it and think, oh, that must be pushing into that soft tissue. It must be really painful. But obviously it's not because uh, most heel spurs are, uh, are off. They're often uh, picked up incidentally and uh, found in people who don't actually have heel pain. Correct. That's right. And patients often find that hard to believe. And finally, when you do cure a patient of plantar fasciitis, if they've had a heel spur on x-ray, it often doesn't go away. The heel spur is still there, but the pain has disappeared. So heel spurs can play a part in, in, in heel pain development, but uh, but not always. Sometimes they can be up to one and a half centimetres in length. Other times they can be quite minuscule. So, Tony, how do you distinguish sometimes when, say, heel pain or foot pain may have sources or origins perhaps from the low back? Because that's something as chiropractors we see a lot of. We see often referred pain that heads down to the feet. When a patient comes in to see you, how would you, you, I mean, you've gone through some of the causes of the heel pain, but how would you perhaps rule out maybe other causes of heel pain that may not be, maybe not purely associated with the foot, but maybe concomitantly or with something else be related to? How, how do you, how's your thinking process work there? I think careful questioning and listening, Paul, listening to the patient, listening to them describe their heel pain, the type of heel pain they've got. Is it is it ridiculous? Does it travel? Uh, are there other parts of their leg that are, that are painful? Is it sore at certain times of the, of the day as opposed to others? But careful questioning in history. And there's certain neurological tests that we conduct in the rooms to uh, determine whether there's a neurological component behind it, higher up the chain, that is. Okay. Can you expand on that? What sort of stuff you do with that neurologically? Neurologically, we would do simple tests like uh, stretching those nerves that, that, that innovate the heel and the foot. Yep. So these are long nerves, as you guys would know, that, yep. that exit the spine. Yep. And uh, they innovate various parts of the foot, ankle, and leg. Yep. So we place stretch on these nerves yep. through simple tests in the room yep. and see if we can reproduce symptoms. Isn't that interesting? Because, I mean, you're, you're describing tension, uh, nerve tension tests and, um, you know, even though the podiatrist has that sort of focal area of the foot, ankle, 
up to maybe the calf, but, you know, they're still having to explore outside the areas to sort of ascertain whether it's a problem in their office, where their scope of practice lives, and, and us as well as chiropractors because, you know, we're not, we're not experts in feet and we refer commonly, often we refer to Tony because we're looking at cases there that uh, require his expertise and, and working really well with the co-management sort of regime. It works the same both ways, I suppose. Absolutely. It's the way to go. I mean, co-management and just for whatever works best for the patient. Uh, and all of us as practitioners need to take a little step back and look globally at a patient. Mm. We're not just the sum of our parts. We're, we're a little bit more than that. And, you know, mm. as, we, as we've said all along, that uh, podiatrists need to understand where their limitations are. Chiropractors need to understand where their limitations yeah, are. Sure. And, uh, and then we go from there. Now, let, let's move move on. Let's assume we've, we've made the diagnosis. We've determined that this is plantar fasciitis. What do we do about it? Seek early help. Yep. Early Seek early help, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So once the patient is in the room and we have it diagnosed, we have to start looking at all possible causes for this problem and... and Essentially, getting in there with aggressive management, and that looks at all sorts of aspects from footwear to training techniques to correcting foot posture if required, and then commence an aggressive treatment regime. Tony, now we had a bit of a, a, an audio feedback there. You're dropping out a bit. Do you want to just go over that little last bit that you said? You guys just froze in too, yeah. So do you want to just ask the question again for me, Anthony? Yeah, just um, in terms of treatment, we, we've worked out this plantar fasciitis, so, so what do we do about it? Okay. There's a number of treatments available for plantar fasciitis. These range from your conventional treatments, from, from foot arch supports, otherwise known as orthoses, to footwear changes, stretching regimes, anti-inflammatories, there's some, some newer techniques there on the market as well these days, such as shockwave therapy, uh, PRP, which is blood injections into the plantar fascia, simple resting splints like a night splint to be worn at night or, or an assisted cam boot, a, a walker that, that one can wear during the day to minimise tension on the plantar fascia. So how did this is one of the things that um, when do you go for the rest, don't use it, ease off on it as opposed to massage it more, get right in there, get moving. Mm. And where's the balance there with, with plantar fasciitis? Look, Anthony, this is a weight-bearing structure. You, as you know, you can't rest your foot. So I'm a big fan of patients getting out there and trying to live a normal life and exercise the foot. It is part of the treatment as well. Um, I think it's a matter of not overdoing it. It's educating the patient to avoid from uh, avoid aggravating factors such as sprinting, jumping, squatting, and the like. So it's making gradual changes in their life, in their daily life, so they can still go about and do what they have to do throughout the day without aggravating that structure. So it is a fine line. What about Tony? With regards, you mentioned the orthoses. When, in your clinical management, when when do you decide whether you use maybe a firmer orthosis or a softer sort of uh, orthotic? I think both have a role with plantar fasciitis. It's a matter of picking the foot type, designing and manufacturing that orthotic carefully so the patient is comfortable with that orthotic. The last thing you want to do is make this whiz-bang orthotic that aggravates this, this plantar heel pain. 
So designing it carefully, picking the patient's shoe and selecting your fabric very, very carefully. So in short, Paul, I think they both have a place for plantar fasciitis. And would you have a situation where you'd have a testing period for a period of time and a patient may come back and say, look, you know, now I'm a bit sore. Can we just, you know, like reassess that? And, you know, how do you decide sometimes whether it's just adaptation, their body getting used to a new position like a new pillow that we often give with our patients? How do you sort of work that out? Yeah, well, I'd like to think most of our treatments wouldn't exacerbate the condition, but sometimes it can happen. And I suppose that is the point where we would look at further imaging to make sure that we haven't missed anything at those initial few consultations. So do we have any measuring tool? No, I think think the pain scale is probably the most effective for for, for heel pain. Uh, But keeping an open mind and working through what we call the standard treatment algorithm for heel pain. Okay, and your clinical experience. You mentioned a few other little strategies there, the PRP. Can you explain for our listeners about the blood injections, what that involves? And uh, what was the, there was another another strategy you have at your... Shockwave, yeah. Shockwave therapy. We have shockwave therapy, that's right. So... PRP, or otherwise known as autologous blood injections or platelet-rich plasma injections, it's where the blood is taken from the patient. It's uh, In the case of PRP, it's spun in a little centrifuge. The platelet-rich portion of that sample is injected carefully back into the irritated site of the plantar fascia. Platelet-rich plasma is full of healing properties and, and all sorts of goodies. And the whole premise is that... Uh, effectively by injecting this platelet-rich plasma into the injured area, you're stimulating growth and stimulating healing. Shockwave therapy, on the other hand, uses sound waves applied carefully over the injured site, and that also sets off a cascading healing effect as well. So obviously treatment's important for, uh, for plantar fasciitis, and I imagine obviously home care and advice that you give to the patient is Equally very, very important. What are your, your typical suggestions as far as home care for, for, for this condition? So, once again, early aggressive management is required. Stretching is something that patients should be doing up to 10 to 15 times a day, uh, especially through the, the muscles across the back of the leg, uh, the lower leg, the calf and the hamstring. Wearing comfortable footwear, so shoes that have nice soft soles, none of these business shoes with leather stacked heels or wooden stacked heels. Mm -hmm. That's certainly something I'd like my patients to stay away from while they've got this condition. In some cases, patients need some analgesic or anti-inflammatory medication. Obviously, we we prescribe these on the odd occasion and we use them very, very carefully. Um, so these are things that they can do to, to help manage their pain. And, of course, the, the, probably the cheapest option is good old ice bag. So frozen peas or an ice pack at the end of a long day for 10 to 15 minutes is certainly another way to settle some of that pain at the heel. You know, Anthony, we're, we're very fortunate to have someone of uh, Tony's calibre as our first podiatrist on Back Chat. That's right. And uh, number one. Number one, and Tony, what we have at this sort of stage of the show, we ask about a pivotal experience uh, that I suppose has maybe helped you move forward or come back from a challenge or, you know, you've something you've learned from incredibly that has led you to be sort of an expert that you are today. Would you mind sharing something like that with, us, with our back chat listeners? Yeah, sure. I thought about this one, Paul, and 
and uh, a pivotal experience. I, I've got so many in my life. I've got three children and a lovely wife and uh, full of experiences. But one that <laughs> comes to mind is that um, it takes me back to about 15 years ago when I first met you, Anthony. Yes, and right. I was a younger clinician. And, and back then, I, I could work for as long and as hard as I wished. And it, it was nothing for me to work 12, 13-hour days, six days a week. And on the odd occasion, I'd put in a Sunday for a desperate patient. So maybe that's the Italian work ethic coming out there, Paul. I, oh, I don't know. Totally but concur. I was driven, I was ambitious, Great. and I had a true passion for the profession. All of these hours, though, came at a, cro- a cost. At 35, I developed a, a debilitating RSI injury, uh, which affected my wrist. So this is my working wrist. And determined to continue these long hours, the, the chronic pain finally brought me down and with the realisation that uh, what I was doing was no longer sustainable. So with the premature passing of my, my dear mother, um, basically it taught me that old age was not a given and I had to bring back in some balance into my life. Mm-hmm. So I finally succumbed to an operation and had to have four weeks off work, which, which was unheard of, mm-hmm. and for, for me anyway. So... You've got to keep in mind, too, this is somebody that could never take any more than year, uh, one week off work mm. a year. Yeah. So every cloud does have a silver lining indeed, and uh, difficult times do lead to, uh, to better days. Um, the whole experience itself also gave me a first-hand insight into the psychological effect of chronic pain. Um, and I'd have to say it certainly made me more empathetic to, to my patients and, and helped me to become a better clinician. Hey, Tony, look, thanks for sharing that, man. That's something which is you know, very personal, isn't it, Tony? It's uh, Anthony, it's very personal. And, um, you know, for Tony to share that is um, – and also to mention, you know, because I, I, I knew you when, you when your mother passed and I remember talking to you about that. It was a really tough time. And, uh, gosh, I mean, you should be so proud of what you've done, mate. You've done some amazing work. Can I ask you, actually one, can I ask you one subsequent question too? Because I, I did mention that you did myotherapy beforehand and then moved into podiatry. So tell us a bit about that transition. Well, this is funny. I, from year 10, I had this passion to, uh, to, to, to work with, with athletes and uh, I wanted to deal with the body as a whole. I had uh, pretty good tactile ability with my hands and I felt that my therapy was the course for me. So I entered that course, completed two years of it and then decided, you know what, I've got a fancy for this whole foot and ankle business, this podiatry business. So I ended up going into podiatry, completing that three-year course. Back then it was three years. And then I flipped back over to finish off the third year of myotherapy. Okay. So that's how that came about. So the two, I work solely as a sports podiatrist these days, but myotherapy training certainly does come into into use daily. Mm, So uh, in summing up then, um, perhaps you could uh, give us, uh, Tony, three take-home messages uh, that you think might be really pertinent for people who are experiencing uh, heel pain. Okay, so to avoid the chronicity of heel pain, it's very important to take your treatment seriously, get onto it nice and early to avoid the psychological and physiological effects. Number two, heel pain is preventable. So especially if if you have heel pain and you do manage to get it better, which it will, there's no reason why it can't come back in the future. So you have to listen to your healthcare professional and make sure you put some good preventative treatments in place. And third and finally, there's no magic one bullet or panacea to heal pain. As I said earlier, there is a treatment algorithm that most podiatrists will follow. 
and it's really hard to to just pick one of those and expect it to resolve your symptoms fully. It's often a combination of different treatments. So there's no panacea to fixing heel pain. Excellent, Tony. Look, thank you so much for joining us on Back Chat. Uh, Anthony, I really appreciate your knowledge and wisdom and sharing with our audience uh, here. So thank you so much, mate. Thank you. Not a problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Excellent. Now, uh, if you have foot or ankle problems and uh, you'd like to see Tony and all his associates, his clinic website is www.easternfootcare.com.au. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's show will be on this page. If you like the show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best of what you do and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.